See here. We are looking at soteriology once again. Soteriology. And I apologize, I did not print um, handouts for you this morning. So, hope you have pen and paper or a good memory. No, but just the outline we're following. Um, We've worked through our introduction. We worked through our introduction in which we were looking at... um, We were looking at just some general thoughts about salvation. Um, We talked through some key questions that we want to try to address. We tried to work on a definition of salvation and the aspect that there is a past aspect to it, as well as a present and a future anticipation of salvation from the coming wrath. Um, We talked a little bit about the order of salvation, some of how the intricate parts interrelate, such as election and predestination, and then faith, justification, well, what comes first? We talked through a little bit about that, thought on it, and then we discussed the purpose of salvation, to save sinners, to show God's glory to the angels, and then ultimately, it's for the glory of God. And we looked at a number of texts uh, as it relates to that, um, several of them saying, for his namesake, for his namesake. God forgives sins. So then we worked into um, number two, which is prior to the salvific moment. Prior to the salvific moment. And that's what we're picking up today. The first piece that we looked at in prior to the salvific moment is God's forbearance. It's not chronologically first, but theologically, if God was not forbearing and long-suffering with us, there would be uh, no such thing as salvation. We would just receive the immediate destruction that we deserve. So that's where we've framed our thoughts leading up to now. And so our goal this morning is to discuss foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge. So God's foreknowledge is related with his election, with predestination. We see that in several texts. Um, As a matter of fact, let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 to start our discussion this morning, to start our thinking, to start our thoughts as it relates to foreknowledge. So 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. I like this verse. It kind of, Peter, he's, he's very logical in his structure. So he says, I'm writing to these strangers who are scattered in these various regions. They're part of the dispersion as a result of persecution. And then he describes them. They're elect. So that's our main word. He says they're elect. And then he gives three prepositional phrases in describing their election. He gives the standard of their election, if you will. Um, It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then he gives the means. It's through or by sanctification of the Spirit. 
And then he gives the purpose, the intended goal, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So God's election is on the basis of his foreknowledge. It's by means of the Spirit's sanctification work in our lives. And then it's for the purpose that we would come to obey Christ and receive the sprinkling and cleansing of his blood. So that kind of frames our thoughts a little bit um, as it relates to foreknowledge. So foreknowledge would, if we were thinking through that order of salvation, foreknowledge would precede election, at least logically, because God elected based on foreknowledge. Follow that? I love that little section. It's just dense, and it's his introduction to the letter. So, but then what we want to do is just take some time to do um, a word study on the topic of foreknowledge. But here's a definition I got from the Lexham Survey of Theology. Um, a definition of foreknowledge. Well, actually, how about this? Before we go to that, how would you define foreknowledge? What might be necessary to a definition of foreknowledge? Eric? Knowing beforehand. No, knowing beforehand. Yeah. Pretty part and parcel to the word, huh? Foreknow. To know beforehand. Anything else you might include in it? <laughs> so, just at the very root of the word, it's pretty obvious what it means. It's to know beforehand. Um, what's interesting is it comes up quite a bit in context as it relates to election and foreordination. Um, if you actually, if you're still in First Peter chapter one, just look down to verse twenty. We'll we'll look at this text in a minute um, as we work through. But uh, verse nineteen, he says, well, verse eighteen. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who, speaking of Christ, the sacrificial lamb, verily was foreordained. That's the same word, foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So surrounding foreknowledge, predestination, and election, you're probably familiar. There's a little bit of a debate. People people differ in how they view it. And it's largely just different perspectives, obviously, on the same truth. So this definition from that Lexham Survey of Theology gives, um, it gives credence to both. He says, Foreknowledge is understood variously as God's eternal loving regard and saving purpose. So that would be like somehow in God's foreknowing people, he foreordained them for salvation. Or merely as his passive awareness of the future choices of free individuals. So there's God's eternal loving regard and saving purpose. That'd be like an active aspect of foreknowledge. Or the passive side, awareness of the future choices of free individuals. Why is the word variously in there? That's in there because people understand it in various ways. So he says, here's two varieties. Yep, God's foreordination, his purpose set in advance, or the passive awareness of what choices we would make. Does 
It's a good question. Pastor actually just preached through it a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1. And so he defined it essentially as that second definition, the passive awareness of the future choices of free individuals. So in other words, God foresaw the faith of those who would trust Christ, and therefore he elected them. Mm-hmm. So that was pastor preach. That's how pastor preached through it. If you do, y'all remember that a little bit. It was a few weeks ago, but um, pastor didn't say it's the only way to understand it. He said, "This is my opinion." I think is the words he used. So realize you can be orthodox. Orthodox meaning straight doctrine. You can have a right view that's not that view. It's not heresy necessarily. Necessary. Okay. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. of the dispersions, elect with Levin in verse 2. Yep. Okay. So my question is, or my... Because King James reads it the other way with elect according to this. So in the way that it's written, and I looked it up in Greek on my phone, is elect belongs to sojourners or exiles. So it's describing those adjectives or something. But I'm just curious, so then does it mean the elect exiles? According to the foreknowledge, so like they're exiles according to the foreknowledge of God? Not that it really doesn't even foreknowledge. <laughs> sure. That's a, no, because I think what he's doing here is he's saying these are sojourners, but he's not just writing to anyone who's scattered, he's writing to the elect who are scattered. Yeah. No, I think I'm following you because you're exactly right. It is an adjective in verse 1, um, eclectois, and it's modifying uh, the sojourners. The sojourners in the dispersion. Well, I think they did that. Well, the verse markings are uh, arbitrary, right? Not original. But I think what they're doing is, because um, I did look, yeah. commentators are pretty, uh, pretty unanimous on saying, what do these three prepositional phrases modify? They're not modifying sojourners. They're modifying elect. So I think what the King James translators were trying to do is demonstrate the, the ready connection. Yep. That elect is what Peter's then talking about with the three prepositional phrases. Does that make sense? The according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto so obedience and spring claim. They're saying that those things are modifying adjective elect and not the Greek adjective sojourner. Yeah. I think that's probably why the King James translators brought it down to two. Okay. Yep. Just to make it a ready connection so that we could see it in our language easier. But it does relate to foreknowledge because if foreknowledge was describing strangers, then it would be that their trials are actually foreknown by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So we have kind of this active sense that some people would take foreknowledge as God actively foreordained people toward salvation, whereas the passive sense is God knew what choices we would make way before we know them. Which, let's think about that for a second. Did God know the choices that we would make prior to our making them? Mm-hmm. Can you think of any scripture that would go with that? Yeah. I know the plans I have for you. Yep. Plans to help you, not to harm you. It's good. Other scripture? James? Uh, it doesn't quite say that necessarily. Yeah, we get we get some of that picture. So, like Second Peter actually talks about that in chapter three, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So that kind of gives us the sense. That's how we interpret and understand it: is God actually resides outside of time. Yeah. So these two texts, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, and then Acts 15, those give us some thoughts about God's knowing the future. Who wants to look up for us? Isaiah 46. Ashley, you want to read that for us? Um, yep. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done. Saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Hmm. So God says, remember those things that have happened from ancient times. I'm God. No one's like me because I declare the end from the beginning. My counsel will stand. I will do all my plan. All my pleasure. Okay, so God declares the end from the beginning. We understand that concept that God knows the future. He knows everything that we have chosen, but also that we will choose. Um... Acts 15 um, gives us a, sa- a similar description of it. And remember, Acts chapter 15, that's the Jerusalem council. So we're in Simeon, in Peter's description of it. Verse 15, he says, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who does all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Yeah. So even the coming day of judgment, only the Father knows. Yeah. It's good. James? Is this really a time clock? Because I was just thinking about since God's outside of time, and that's how the so he knows everything before everything happens, which would include the prophets. Exactly. So the prophets are a good example. He's just showing people glimpses of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the prophets, that's our most um, abundant example of all of these events that God told beforehand through the, through the prophets. It's good. So we understand this basic concept. God knows the future. So then, the question is, is foreknowledge, that passive awareness, in other words, God knows what will happen, God knows what choices we will make, what choices we would make, and so that's his foreknowledge of our future choices was the basis of God's election. Or then, the flip side is, um, and often this would be what um, Reformed theology would say, uh, Reformed, talking about the doctrine of salvation specifically, they say a lot of other things, but specifically about salvation, they would say it's more the foreordaining side of it. Um, and we'll look at some texts that they bring up of why, um, why they go that direction. But both views, you're well within orthodoxy. It's kind of what we want to... Couldn't it get to the point, though, where someone says, I don't need to witness. God, God mm-hmm. chooses Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. It could get to that point. If someone takes God's elective purpose as, well, I don't need to do anything because God's going to do it all anyways. Yep. Yep. Warren? I've been, I've been looking at different things um, that people say. And one of the things that I, I'm starting to detect more and more is the view of God that when he going back to the old traditional heavenly clock he built the clock. He wound it up, and he set it in motion, and now he knows it's going to click second by second, moment mm-hmm. by moment. He knows how it's going to work, and he knows it's going to work until it winds down. And then he sits back and lets it happen. Mm-hmm. So when you go to the passing, you have God, how do, we, how do we make the separation between a passive God Yeah. So there's a couple views that there are a couple views that are not orthodox that Warren's pointing out. First of all, that's essentially deism that God created and then he steps back and he's aloof. He doesn't interact with creation anymore. So that's deism. Another one that is not orthodox would be what's called open theism. And open theism teaches that God actually does not know the future, but that he's just um, a master chess player, if you will. He can anticipate the moves of his opponents, but he doesn't actually know what they'll do. So then he's just reacting to whatever we choose. So that's open theism. And we've seen from the scripture, you could go throughout all the scripture. That's not what's happening. God actually... His plan will be accomplished. All of history follows God's plan, even as it incorporates free will of man. 
But that's important. How do we how do we understand if we take this passive side that God does know what future choices we'll make? But then how do we take that and not proclaim a godlike deism where God created but then he steps back and is no longer engaged? Fair enough. But we see all throughout, like John 6, 44, for instance, um, Jesus says, no man comes to the son except the father draws him. So God is actively engaged even in the, the drawing aspect of drawing sinners to himself. Would he change his plans? Sorry? And you see why people debate this. Because there's things we don't understand. And that's ultimately what I want to ensure that we kind of at least walk away at the end of the day is understanding that we don't understand it. Even if we think... What? Yeah. Hopefully we have at least a sense. And I think sometimes it's helpful to maintain that healthy tension. Is There is intentional tension that God is sovereign. He's in control, and yet we still are free, and we get to make free choices. And if we let go of that tension either direction, then you kind of get off in the ditch, and it's dangerous. Maybe he said his control in 2,000 years ago. Sorry? Maybe his control was established when he created the world. So he doesn't need to be asked. Yeah, I think Diana's right. <laughs> no, but that is, that is a view. But it's not the view that the scripture teaches as you work through and see these. Sorry? I tend to, and people don't like it, because I, is it passive or is it active? And I say yes. And I don't like to sit there and say it's completely one, it's completely the other, because if you look through the scripture, you see elements of both, and there isn't anything saying that it can't be both. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like when the angel of the Lord, the, the head of the, you know, comes down to Joshua. Are you for us or for our enemy? No. Yeah. He doesn't always give us the black and white, yes, no, that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a passive-active foreknowledge. Does he know before? Does he do that? You know, I go, yes. Like, yes. Did I choose Tim or did Tim choose me? Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something that's just not one or the other. It's yep. yes. Yep. So that's what I do when I look at the passage versus the idea of foreknowledge is I don't know yes. how it works, but it does. Mm-hmm. So, yes, through history, because um, he did a Spanish Armada, 
Sorry. And we've dealt with that. Yeah. So he intended for us to sin. Now, does that put God in a bad place? Where does it say he intended for us to sin? Well, the purpose is um, just look at Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Watch with Pharaoh. He intended, he intended for his heart to be hardened so he would sin. That's just one. Yeah. And who hardened? Yeah. And if you look at Pharaoh, though, yeah, who who hardened his heart first, Pharaoh or God? Pharaoh did. What if he has a plan already set aside for both in free will? Like mm-hmm. he knows if we sin, he's got a plan for us, and then if he knows if we follow, then. How are you, buddy? You doing good? Yeah. Are you ready? So, I guess we acknowledge we don't have a passiveness of God knowing what's going to happen, but very actively involved in what's going to happen. You didn't prepare for this. Oh, I'm. So that's kind of that view is um, often called Molinism um, or middle knowledge. So God not only knows the future, but he also knows all potential things. And so because God knows all the potentialities, he could then plan for how he would incorporate the potentialities. So that's sometimes known as a mediating position between Calvinism and Arminianism. Siri. Which one? Molinism? I think it's M O L I N I S M. It's a fun one. All right, let's get into some scripture here to help so that we're not just spouting off opinions. Because we've all got one and they don't really matter quite as much as the scripture. So let's start with looking at some Old Testament texts. Um, the Old Testament, there's not a word like in Greek. We'll look at the Greek word in a minute. But in Hebrew, there's not a word for foreknow. It's just no. Um, it's yada. So there's a few passages that are important as it relates to this one. Let's go to Genesis 18 first. Genesis chapter 18. So remember what's happening in Genesis chapter 18. Um, God is preparing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, along with two angels, come and have dinner with Abraham and with Sarah. And, and then uh, look at verse 16. The men rose up from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So God, um, debating, if you will, 
well, are we going to tell Abraham or should we not tell Abraham the plan? But he says, I'm going to tell Abraham because he's going to become a great nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And he says, for I know him at the beginning of verse 19. I know him that he'll command his children and his household um, to keep the way of the Lord. Yeah. And so that's the rub. It, is it gives us this idea of chosen. It gives us this idea of I've foreordained him. Which is true. God chose Abraham. We see that. Genesis 12 calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. But this is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. So then that's, that's the debate. Is it I've chosen him or I know him or some of both? Is it God foresaw that Abraham would choose to teach his family and his descendants to keep the way of the Lord? Or God foreordained that? Hmm, interesting. Okay, so that one. And then Amos chapter 3. Let's go over there. Amos chapter 3. And realize these are the two texts, but out of the many. Um, Yadah is used for the most part to mean just to know the way that we would use that word, to know. So it's most often, I mean, the word comes up 943 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. So two out of 943, that's a pretty low percentage for it to be used in the way that it means like to foreordain. So let's look at that, Amos chapter 3. Um, as God is bringing this oracle of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel because of their unfaithfulness to God, he's bringing it through Amos in the um, in the late 800s, early 700s BC, around in there. So Amos brings this oracle. Look at verse one. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And he continues down talking about that judgment that's coming. But is this God saying that he has not known about any of the other nations of the earth besides Israel? No. God knows about the other nations. There's some sort of aspect where he's saying there's a relational knowledge that God has with Israel. Um, you only have I known. Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 9 um, relate with it. We don't have to go there. Um, well, Deuteronomy 7 um, more so, because we'll come to that text later under election, probably next week. Um, but God, that's the one God's talking about. I didn't choose you because you were more a number, um, for you were the fewest of all people. So that concept, God did choose Israel, but that uses the word choose. So there's the Hebrew passages that often Reformed theology would use to say there's, in this idea of foreknow, there's the aspect of foreordain. Okay, maybe. But we see those passages that there is a a nuance to the concept of knowledge that can be used, that there's some relational aspect. Follow that? So then let's, uh, let's look at some New Testament texts. Where the noun is used, we just read 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. That was the adjective form. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And while you're going there, 
Um, have any of you ever heard of the book of Judith? Yes. Yes. It's a book from the Apocrypha. It's part of the canon for Catholics and for Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's not part of the Protestant canon, uh, with good reason. Um, the book essentially presents, it's, it's anachronistic. It gives some details from um, when a, Antiochus Epiphanes de, desecrated the temple. It gives details from there, which that's way later. It gives details as if Nebuchadnezzar were still reigning and when he destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But then it's written from the perspective of it's the Assyrians who are besieging Jerusalem, which would have been back in the 700s B.C. So there's good reason it's not in our, um, in our Bible. But um, they, Judith, she was a widow. I was interested just reading it this week. She was a widow. She was married to a guy named Manasseh. She was a beautiful widow. And um, Jerusalem's under besiegement, and they're running. They're out of water. And they say, I think, five days. If in five days we don't get some rain so we can have water, we're going to surrender to the Assyrians, um, led by a general named, I don't know how to say it, Holofernes, Holofernes, something like that. So they say this, but then Judith, she goes and she prays. She's like, hey, we shouldn't give up. Um, and as she's talking to God, she, she says um, that God's judgment is with foreknowledge. God's judgment is with foreknowledge. So God has planned all of these things. Um, we shouldn't be dismayed. She brings it up again later in, um, because essentially what she does, she develops this plan that she's going to make herself all beautiful and then go and trick all the enemy forces and she infiltrates their camp. She's in Holofernes' tent um, at night. He gets drunk. He's asleep, and she cuts off his head and leaves the camp with his head and her maidservant and heads back to Jerusalem and says, hey, the Lord's given us victory. So a really interesting little narrative. Um, who knows if it's true? But Judith says God's judgment is with foreknowledge. So she uses that Greek word because it's in Greek, the Septuagint. She uses it in that way as God has decreed all that occurs. And then she also uses it to refer to her prophetic insight. Interesting. So, but since it's not scripture, we won't waste any more time on it. But it is interesting. And it does help inform us of how um, the word was used in Greek. So, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 gives us um, the same kind of Flavor is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 that we looked at. Uh, verse 22, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain. God's raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. So we get an interesting little um, we get an interesting little tension here that God del- he determined and foreknew Christ as the sacrificial lamb, but then he was delivered up, and the wicked hands of sinful man freely crucified him. But it, Jesus was delivered up by the determined counsel or the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. 
So here we have this aspect. It's used speaking of God's predetermined plan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. God performed through Christ. God's active in it. I read 23 wrong because I would have thought just even by the hands of godless men was predetermined. Ah, yeah. Yep, it's the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and then he's delivered up by that according to that definite plan, and then they crucified and killed him. So that was. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So So, I don't think so. Jesus' crucifixion was part of God's eternal plan. And sinful men in their free, freely wicked choices, they accomplished what God had planned from eternity past. Yeah. Okay, so there's the noun version. Um, And this is the word prognosco for, if you care about the Greek words, prognosto. It's just a preposition on the front of the word gnosko, which means to know. And then you get pra means to know before. Know before. <coughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then we've got several texts under this heading. <coughs> Since we're in Acts, let's go Acts chapter 26. This is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. Um, And he's happy that he's before King Agrippa because King Agrippa, Paul has been accused by the Jews for breaking Jewish laws. And he says, I'm happy because you, King Agrippa, you are an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. That's verse 3. But then we'll focus in on verses 4 and 5. Acts chapter 26, verse 4. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. Okay, so that word is a different Greek word to know. Um, It's oida. So Paul says, the Jews know my past life. They know my manner of life. I was a Jew. I lived in um, mine own nation at Jerusalem. But then verse 5, which, speaking of the Jews, he says, which knew me. That's prognosko which foreknew me, or knew me from the beginning, is how the King James translates it. Who knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul says, if these guys are going to be honest, they foreknew. They already knew from a long time ago that I was actually a really good Jew. Okay, so, observation. How does he use the word foreknow there? Hmm. So it's, it's like, I could have had the knowledge of someone told me something, I saw something, something that was reported in the news, and knowing about the person mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily know a personal relationship. Right. So it clarifies that. Exactly. So it absolutely can be used in just this sense of, they knew him before. They knew him. So that's helpful. Then... Um, Romans 8. Let's go to Romans 8. Because now we, we're kind of bouncing back and forth because we're going just in, in, the order of the squ- in the order of the Scripture. But now this is a 
a use in the context of God's predestination. Romans 8, verse 28, we're familiar, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul kind of elaborates on this concept of those who are called. He says, for whom he, God, did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So we get those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those called, he justified. Those justified, he glorified. So then the question is, in what way did God foreknow them prior to their predestination? Was it God chose them ahead of time? Or God knew them ahead of time, or he foresaw their faith. Romans 11.2. Let's drop down there since we're in Romans. Because that text is just specifically about God's saints. Anyone who's part of the people of God. Um, So Christians would be included. Of God's purpose to sanctify us and make us like Christ. Now in chapter 11 verse 2. Paul has just been working through chapters 9, 10, and 11, describing, um, well, verse 1 answers it. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Speaking of Israel, because we have the church now. God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew, which he foreknew. You're good. There in the New Testament, when because like there was the Abraham, it's like the Abrahamic law, whatever. And then there was like covenants, right? But then when Jesus died on the cross, or Jesus came, those covenants were—they're not um, right. They're not covenants now because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So, like the Mosaic Covenant, for instance, of here is the law, his people keep it, that one is fulfilled in Christ. Abrahamic Covenant, on the other hand, was God would bless Abraham and curse those who cursed him. That one's still in effect. But then we live now the New Covenant. And that's described back in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Essentially, the mark of the New Covenant is the the coming of the Spirit that God would now live inside his people's hearts and write his law on their hearts. Does that help? So essentially what Paul's saying is God still has a purpose for Israel. Even though right now Israel as a nation is largely not believers in Jesus as Messiah, there's coming a day when all Israel will believe. Um, And he says part of the reason for which God has not cast away his people is that he foreknew them. And that reminds us back of Amos 3. Remember, you only have I known among the nations. And it reminds us back of Genesis 18. For I know him. Interesting. All right. Um, We looked at 1 Peter 1 verse 20 that Christ was foreknown. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll start wrapping it down. This is our last text to look at. 
2 Peter chapter 3, and um, the context, Peter is motivating godly living um, as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth that are coming, but there's going to be a day of judgment when everything melts. Back in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt. So we have this anticipation of the new heavens, but it comes through judgment. Some people have accused God of being slack concerning his promise that Jesus would come back and establish the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God. But um, he says God is not slack, but he's actually long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's waiting. But then in that context... um, Verse 16, uh, well, verse 15. An account that the long-suffering our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in, in them of these things. So Paul's talked to you about this before, of coming judgment and salvation. But he says, in which, in Paul's epistles, epistles are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. So then Peter says, some people who are struggling and they're unstable, they twist what Paul says, and it leads them to destruction. Then verse 17, You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, you know of God's judgment that's coming, the new heavens and new earth that's coming, you know of these people who twist Paul's words, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, Fall from your own steadfastness. But did you see that word no at the beginning of verse 17? Seeing you know these things before, that's for no. You already know these things. So did you see we kind of bounce back and forth between texts? There's some texts that give us this aspect of we know beforehand, but then some, there's some sort of context related with God's election. Spiritually? Look at that. So we made it through all of our texts. What are you thinking? Any, any further discussion or questions that we should have in our minds as we get ready for next week to look at God's election? It's a lot of material to cover. I just have a weird question. Okay. In the Old Testament, Yada is also used for Adam, who was like Eve, and they had a son. Is there a way to look to see what... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there would be. Okay. I don't know if I have it in my logos, but. Yeah, oh, I do. I do have it, I think. But we could look and see if we can find it. I have it. Yep, I do have it in Greek. What? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to pull it up, yeah. Yeah. 